I want to welcome you to a special edition of You Asked For It. Justin is on vacation. I'll be doing this by myself today. And the title, the, the lengthy title for what I'm doing is An Explanation of Three Models of Church Structure in Southern Baptist Life and a Look at How They're Affecting Us as a Denomination. So those are my two goals, to talk about three models that are circulating for how to do church, and then look at how is that affecting us in some of the controversies that we're having. Baptist churches were fairly uniform when I began my ministry in the 1970s. We sang from the same hymnal, used the same literature, Sunday school literature in every church, and worshiped for the most part at 11 a.m. on Sunday morning. In my lifetime, the church has gone through tremendous and even exciting changes. I want to make it clear that there are some mixtures of types of these structures in many churches. We're, after all, a fellowship of autonomous churches. Each church can decide how it does church. Our church has more elements that would be considered traditional than modern, even though we have both traditional and modern style worship services on Sunday morning. Churches within these categories could have differences among themselves in the way they do church. That is one of the fruits of being a denomination that is basically a missions network that includes only autonomous churches. So here are the three types of churches. I'll run quickly through the first two because the newest, the third one will require more explanation. The first model for how you do church in Southern Baptist life is what I'm referring to as the traditional churches. These are the churches I grew up in uh, when I was a young person. The traditional church has these general characteristics. They have all ages in Sunday school on Sunday morning. The officers are usually pastors and deacons, but rarely elders. The music in most traditional churches usually features a choir and uses more established music. Congregational votes occur at least for major decisions and, uh, and occur in regular church business meetings. That basically describes many of the characteristics of this church. A second style of church that's a very growing style of church in Southern Baptist life is what has, what we're now calling modern churches. Modern churches are known for their quote, modern style of worship. They use a smaller praise team and feature more recent music. Many modern churches now gather in small groups outside the church building instead of meeting for Sunday school on Sundays. Many of them build buildings that have fewer space requirements. They have worship space, children's program spaces for Sunday morning, fellowship space, and offices. They do not choose to build the large amount of buildings that are required to offer all-age Sunday school on Sunday morning, either because they prefer the home setting or because of the economic cost of constructing large amounts of buildings. The third type, since this is a more recent style of doing church, I'll give a lengthier explanation, is what is being called the Nine Marks Churches. Nine Marks Churches have several distinctives. Nine Marks churches are led by a team of male elders. They refer to their polity as elder-led congregationalism. The pastor is simply one of the elders. The shepherding of the congregation is done by these elders. Now, deacons in some Nine Marks churches could be women because the responsibility of deacons is simply to serve the members of the church. It is felt in some churches that women can better serve women in many areas of need. Most nine marks churches are committed to having only one Sunday service as a congregation for worship. They have decided not to have multiple services in the same building on a Sunday or to have multi-sites for worship by a single church. 
Non-Marx churches feel that the unity of the church is best protected when the church meets together in a single service. One non-Marx pastor shared with me that his goal is to have a church where everyone in the church knows every other member's names and cares for each other. If a church were to get too large, that could no longer occur. When a nine-march church grows so large that it's both outgrown its building and has grown to the point where a real community cannot happen in that church, they're committed to planning other churches that will be able to care for people in a personal way. The third characteristic is this. Nine-march churches primarily emphasize what they refer to as meaningful church membership. The nine-march website says that these requirements that I'm about to read Determine who should be the member of a local church. And this is from the Nine Marks website. Someone who confesses the same faith as the church and is willing to live together as a Christian with the church. And then they make it more specific. A Christian should be able to affirm a church's statement of faith and church covenant if it has such documents. Only someone who agrees with the church's stated beliefs and who intends to live a life marked by love for the members of the church should be allowed to join. Now, let me break that down and define some of these elements. Two elements are seen. Number one, in nine March churches, each church has a statement of faith to which any prospective member must agree to. Doctrinal purity based on its confession is very important to these churches. A second element that was mentioned was the existence of a church covenant that a new member must commit to. As stated in their website, the purpose of this covenant is to help the church member live out the Christian life together with the other members. So what are some of the things that are required in order to be a member of a nine marks church? Once again, from their website, according to the Bible, church membership is a commitment every Christian should make to attend, love, serve, and submit to a local church. Now, beyond these listed elements, some nine marks churches have specific requirements in giving or in being involved in service in the church. Fourth characteristic of nine marks churches, nine marks churches practice church discipline as a part of their care for the Christians in their churches. The term marks of the church began in John Calvin's writings. He stated that the three marks of a true church are these, the word rightly preached, the sacraments rightly administered, and church discipline. We Baptists have usually held that the first two marks need to be upheld in our churches. But church discipline of members, especially in a public setting, has been rare in our churches over the past 100 years. So how does this discipline occur and what is its motivation? Nine Marks leaders would say that discipline is simply a part of the discipleship process in the church. The church has agreed to live out the Christian life together. The number of elders are meant to match the number of those needed to watch over the congregation so that every person's life can be watched over and cared for. Many of these churches have, quote, membership meetings. During these, they're either held among the elders or as a church as a whole. During these meetings, every member is mentioned by name and prayed for by name. Some examination of their life is done so that those who are doing well will be affirmed and those who are struggling or in sin can be spoken to and helped to, to return to living a faithful Christian life. A nine marks pastor said to me that the model for church discipline when it's needed is the pattern seen in Matthew 18, 15 through 18. Open sin in the lives of the members is not ignored in these churches. Christians are privately approached first with the goal of leading them to repentance. Removal from the church would only happen if repentance does occur. 
Many non-March churches use discipline to maintain their requirements in the membership covenant. In non-March churches, members have committed to be faithful in attendance. If someone has not been attending, an elder will contact them to see if there's any reason they have not been coming. There are times when the leaders discover a physical need or trial the person is going through, and that gives them the opportunity to stand by someone they did not know was in need. But if someone has been absent for illegitimate reasons, they are encouraged to return to faithful attendance. If the member refuses to return to faithful attendance, the end result would be their official removal from the church rolls. Now, how has this diversity that we're seeing in Baptist life affected our ability to remain unified around Great Commission ministries? In the past, we've chosen to call our denominational statements of faith confessions, not creeds. These statements of faith were meant to identify those biblical truths that the majority of Southern Baptists believe in. Now, we've always tried to make our confessions broad enough so that lines weren't drawn that would exclude legitimate Baptist brothers and sisters. We knew there were issues that sincere Baptists disagree about that should not become tests of fellowship. You could be a Calvinist or non-Calvinist and remain in good standing. You could hold differing ideas about the timing of end times event as long as you believe that Jesus would return. But because our statement of faith was a confession of faith, We did not require that a church agree with every line of our confession as a requirement to stay in our fellowship. Now, under the banner of doctrinal clarity, many are now calling for any church to be removed from our fellowship as a denomination if they disagree with any point in our confession. This turns our confession into a creed. The Southern Baptist Convention in the past has considered missions to be our rallying point for unity, Many now want doctrinal, complete doctrinal conformity to be our rallying point for unity. North Carolina Baptists have developed a healthy way to allow the greatest number of people to join us in our work while respecting our Baptist distinctives and our commitment to the authority and inerrancy of Scripture. We do not require that every church conform to every word of our confession of faith to take part in our mission work. When someone gives to our children's homes, supports our missionaries, or puts on a yellow shirt and helps in disaster relief, we do not scrutinize them or their churches by asking them about every line in our confession. But when it comes to paid leaders in our convention and those who lead out in ministries, we require that they maintain strong doctrinal alignment with our confession of faith. I teach at Fruitland. I live under stronger doctrinal scrutiny because I'm an employee of the convention. I will never and would never teach contrary to our Baptist confession of faith. In effect, we have different standards for membership in our North Carolina convention and for leadership in our convention. I believe this mirrors the pattern of the New Testament. In Acts 2.47, the first Christians were admitted to the early church when they were saved and baptized. It said the Lord added to the church daily such as were being saved. So the only requirement for church membership was they were saved, they'd just been baptized, that made them a member of the church. Uh, Then after that, these new churches were taught the rest of the New Testament principles and doctrines for living the Christian life in their church setting. But a much higher set of standards was laid out for those who would be leaders in the church, the overseers, elders, and deacons in the church. Those standards were laid out in 1 Timothy 3 and in Titus 1. We are in danger of turning our convention time together into church discipline sessions rather than mission rallies. 
There is a possibility that a great deal of our time in coming conventions will be spent in listening to and deciding which churches could be excluded from our fellowship. If you have that strict of a doctrinal standard and that strict of an inspection of, of churches. Uh, we In this last convention, we had eight churches that were disfellowshipped. Four decided to protest. Each time a church was disfellowshipped, they had the motion. They had three minutes to defend the church, three minutes to lay the case against the church, and then the time it took to vote. We have had hundreds of churches turned in since that convention. If it takes, on average, 10 minutes per church to decide an issue, I can see that very soon we will do nothing but do church discipline in our uh, convention settings. Another concern I have is that as we become more restrictive in secondary doctrinal points, we will have less churches to support the great work we're doing in fulfilling the Great Commission. Churches that agree with us on almost every point are now considering walking away from the Southern Baptist Convention because of our dogmatism and what they consider to be secondary matters. As churches walk away, the ones who will be hurt most will be those in the great ministries we have been doing together. Missionaries will no longer be supported. Children in our children's home will no longer be cared for. Our seminaries will not be able to train future ministers, and we won't be able to be there for people in need and disasters. My last appeal is this. We're only given by God a certain amount of time and energy. I believe that we should focus time and energy on the weightiest of matters. Jesus gives an interesting insight in his rebuking of the Pharisees. In Matthew 23, 23, he said, Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint, dill, and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. According to Jesus, there are matters that are weightier than others. We have been identifying over the past few years issues that are weighty enough to warrant the dismissal of a church from our fellowship as a denomination. We began by expelling those who endorsed the sinful LGBTQ practices. That is a weighty matter. We recently added expelling the people, the churches for racist practices or for employing someone guilty of sexual abuse in the ministry. Those are weighty issues. But would calling a female staff member, quote, youth pastor or children's pastor, as the law amendment originally called for this summer, would that be a weighty matter that, that should it should merit expulsion from the denomination? Now, I believe there's room in Baptist life for all three types of these churches. We may have some different distinctives in the way we do church and small differences in our beliefs, but the work we are committed to and the fellowship we have been experiencing should be enough to move us forward into the future. We are facing a serious battle in America for the soul of the nation. Secularism, Liberalism and the LGBTQ agenda are destroying lives. We only have so much time and energy given to us. I would rather use my time and energy in reaching the lost, helping Christians in my church grow in the faith, and defending God's truth against these destructive lies than fighting with Christians that are for the most part on the same page I am. The theme for our convention this fall is the right flag we need to rally under. May we forever be, quote, on mission together. May God bless these thoughts as you think them through.